This message brought to you by Garrison Brewing and Nostaljunk Podcast. Tall Ship Amber by Garrison is an amber red ale, a tasty premium East Coast ale brewed with adventure, craft, pride, and independence. This beer delivers on true refreshment with an easygoing style. Drop anchor, hoist a glass, and launch into one. For more information, why not visit garrisonbrewing.com. The 1980s were a hotbed for slasher films, with franchises such as Friday the 13th and A Nightmare on Elm Street. The killers were becoming more popular than the victims slain on the screen, as audiences were beginning to identify more with the killer's personality, developing franchises, and studios churning out slashers at a rapid rate. They were all mimicking the fan-favorite format, You want blood? You got it! At the time, popular criticisms were not in favor of how slashers were representing the horror genre. Perverse and misogynistic were some of the key words used to describe this genre. Critics considered slasher films to be lowbrow and of poor taste, insinuating that slasher films could never be as poignant as some of its predecessors. Two decades before, Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 masterpiece Psycho reinvented how horrific storytelling could be told. Psycho received praise the world over and influenced not only directors and filmmakers alike, but also the newly defined horror subculture forever. Thank you for joining us on the Nostaljunk Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into the subculture known as Slasher. Thanks for joining us again on the Nostaljunk Podcast. Today we bring you the second part of our Slasher miniseries, The Shape of Slashers to Come. See what I did there? Kyle's most nostalgic album of all time is the refused The Shape of Punk to Come. Anybody? Hello? Must be the fog. It's getting awfully cold. <gasps> did you hear that? Anybody? Else? Slashers were beginning to make waves with seemingly authentic, murderous, blood splattered psychopaths stalking their scantily clad, soon-to-be-mangled victims only to be outsmarted by a virtuous final girl. Does that about sum it up? As outlined in our previous episode, the slasher tropes and formula had existed in previous horror and proto-slashers, but it was Halloween where John Carpenter brilliantly brought these elements together, establishing the original slasher film. After a screening of Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, producer Erwin Yablans and investor Mustafa Akkad, aspiring to achieve a cultural impact equivalent to that of The Exorcist, were inspired to hire Carpenter to direct a horror movie about a killer stalking babysitters. Although the screenplay was only written within about 10 days, Yablans initially wanted the script to read like an old-time radio drama. Inspired by the notion of setting the souls free to terrorize the living, deriving from the Gaelic Samhain traditions, Michael Myers is evil incarnate, 
returning to rekindle the fear. Utilizing a then-state-of-the-art Steadicam, Carpenter was able to shift the perspective of the audience from that of a moviegoer to a participant. The audience can anticipate Michael Myers' actions as the killer. Now, in the traditional horror movie, we often saw things from the victim's point of view, but that's no longer. Now we look through the killer's eyes. It's almost as if the audience is being asked to identify with the attackers in these movies, and that really bothers me. Although this is not the first time the POV filming technique had been employed in horror, it was used in Michael Powell's Peeping Tom in 1960, and again in Bob Clark's Black Christmas in 1974, forcing the audience to witness the killings from the killer's perspective. Nevertheless, by piecing together these creative filming techniques, Carpenter set the stage for what will be called the slasher genre. Often credited as being the alpha slasher, Halloween did exceptionally well at the box office, especially for a horror movie, because of its modest budget of $300,000. And by grossing over $70 million, studios felt there was a killing to be made. And speaking of cashing in, Halloween's star killer, Michael Myers, also known as The Shape, wore a full head latex mask in the movie of what many are still shocked to find out. It was actually a $1.98 William Shatner Captain Kirk mask painted white. Well, that's one for the old captain's log. Slasher films shortly released after Halloween. Tourist Trap. When a Stranger Calls. The Driller Killer. Silent Scream. Terror Train. He Knows You're Alone. Cruising. Windows. New Year's Evil. Don't go in the house. Don't answer the phone. Dress to kill. And Maniac. This success catapulted a multitude of cheap thrills with maximum payouts, but none of which had the impact that Halloween left on film. Until. Sean S. Cunningham's Camper Nightmare, Friday the 13th. Approximately nine months after Halloween's release, Cunningham took out an ad in Variety magazine with large 3D letters bursting through the shards of broken glass Friday the 13th, claiming that it will be the most terrifying film ever made. Cunningham did not have a crew or a movie filmed yet, but he wanted to generate buzz for his film, and it worked. With a small budget and a predictably high box office return, the bidding war had begun between the studios. Paramount, Warner Brothers, and United Artists. Paramount won, making it the first independent slasher to be released by a major motion picture company. Targeting a youth-driven demographic, the film's iconic poster featured a small group of teens presumably sticking together out of fear in the dark and isolated woods, all set within the silhouette of a figure holding a large knife. Friday the 13th became a franchise featuring an iconic hockey mask slasher named Jason. But it wasn't until Friday the 13th Part 3 did audiences finally see Jason don the mask. That mask is now iconic not only of Jason, but with the series, and arguably with horror and slasher genres as well. It wasn't until the final few minutes of the first Friday the 13th 
that audiences were introduced to a maniacal Jason. It was Tom Savini, legendary makeup designer for Friday the 13th, who suggested Jason should be the jump scare at the end, similar to that of the jump scare he experienced at the end of Carrie. Needless to say, Friday the 13th became a massive slasher franchise, but the first film was the most successful of the series, as it grossed just under $60 million. 1980 also saw the release from fellow Frighteners, The Shining, and Dress to Kill. And Jamie Lee Curtis earned the title of Scream Queen as she starred in Prom Night, Terror Train, and John Carpenter's The Fog. Despite the box office success, critics did not approve of Friday the 13th. Low budget, silly, boring, no apparent talent or intelligence, shamelessly bad film, and unoriginal. Gene Siskel referred to Cunningham as one of the most despicable creatures ever to infest the movie business. Those are pretty harsh words. But despite slandering the film and shaming the audience's taste, The film accomplished exactly what it needed to, and the studios were not let down. Slasher films shortly released after Friday the 13th. My Bloody Valentine. The Burning. The Prowler. Eyes of the Stranger. Night School. The Fan. The Fun House. Happy Birthday to Me. Final Exam. Bloody Birthday. Hell Night. Don't Go in the Woods. Alone, Deadly Blessing, Graduation Day, Strange Behavior, Ghost Keeper, Evil Speak, Absurd, Madhouse, and Bloody Moon. While Halloween set the benchmark for indie films slaying at the box office, Friday the 13th was the first slasher film to produce sequels. Friday the 13th Part 2 in 1981, just six months before Halloween 2, Friday the 13th Part 3 in 1982, and so on. And so on, and so on, and so on. You know how these things go. Paramount and Cunningham clearly were inspired to keep the ball rolling, as they were previously successful with the initial Friday the 13th. Evaluating the need for sequels to strengthen the storyline for slashers is not necessarily the point in the early 1980s. As slashers were becoming a successful mainstream horror draw for a younger demographic, teens were coming out in droves to see who would be chased and how they would be murdered. I think the people who made this, who made this movie ought to be ashamed of themselves, and that's what I think. Film critics were not the only voices against the increase of gratuitous violence and sexuality in film. While Nancy and Ronald Reagan were promoting the Just Say No campaign during the war on drugs and pushing for conservative views with less sexuality and violence in film, a counterculture was crafting their response. Take a look at the basic elements of a slasher film. The killer is predominantly seeking revenge on a specific group who are related to or involved with an event the killer has previously endured. Behind the mask, 
there is always a reason for the killings. The films often depict youth partaking in punishable activities such as drug use. In dying for such crimes, it's not difficult to draw a parallel between the slasher's punishment of slaying and the government's punitive measures without the option of treatment. Who usually survives the slasher film? Well, the virtuous final girl. Although we praise the final girl to be a surprising yet supportive quality of slasher films, the films can provide commentary on society as a whole. Slashers may contain many culturally relevant allegories, reflecting the menacing, imposing, and potentially oppressive culture attempting to govern society. It is the unrelenting nature of the killers to punish those they deem necessary to pay, or in this case, die, thereby exposing a twisted and untrustworthy slasher moral code. Thank you for staying with us this week. We will inevitably return with a sequel in our mini-series, On the Slasher. Hello yet again, and welcome to the Insanely Dangerous Retro Pod Show. Size doesn't matter, it's what you do with it. Yes, well, I mean, I'm off now because I've got to go and scream. Absolutely garbage. Paulie Shaw. It's somebody I don't really give a fuck about. He did kick me off the arse! Nice, nice argument there. Oh, shut up. Shut up, you Oh, there's a finger. I, I almost urinated. Tune in next week because I just can't stop loving you guys. It's the Batman jeans. No more Andy Hinchcliffe. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't The world can feel like a pretty hopeless place nowadays. There are about a billion problems in the world, but yet it feels like no one's willing to talk about them. So that's why you should go listen to my new podcast, A Modern Proposal. My name is Parker James, and I'm going to share with you the world's worst problems and some even worse solutions with a guest that's coming in completely cold. You can find A Modern Proposal wherever you get your pods casted. Listen, follow, and be sad.